Welcome to Dialogue Out Loud. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. This is our third year bringing you audio stories and personal voices from the pages of our quarterly journal. And this year, we're excited to showcase new pieces from writers such as Katie Ledlow Rich, Megan Armconnect, Taisha Osler, and more. We couldn't do it without support from our listeners and subscribers. So we just want to say thank you. If you'd like to hear more great audio content like this, go to dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Enjoy. Mothers and Authority by Katie Ludlow Rich. It was not in a grove of trees, and I did not see a pillar of light when I first communed with Heavenly Mother. Instead, I was laying crumpled on the floor of my shower, hot water beating down upon me. My breasts were heavy and sore from milk for my second baby, a colicky newborn who would just not stop crying. I called out for help. Heavenly Mother, I need you. Where are you? Why can't I talk to you? I did not see her. I did not hear her. But I felt her presence and had a thought that was not quite my own. Katie, I am here. Who do you think has the authority to stop you from talking to me? The thought astonished me. Who had I granted more authority in my life than God herself? Yet I knew the answer. Gordon B. Hinckley. As a Mormon girl growing up in the 90s and early aughts, I adored my prophet. I gathered with my dad and brothers to proudly watch him represent us on Larry King Live. I listened as Hinckley responded to a question about women in the priesthood. Well, they don't hold the priesthood at the present time. It would take another revelation to bring that about. I don't anticipate it. The women of the church are not complaining about it. They're happy. I don't hear any complaints about it. As a child, I didn't question the words of the man I had been taught was God's spokesman. When I would later hear quotes from his 1991 General Conference address, Daughters of God, I was sure he must be correct that it was inappropriate for anyone in the church to pray to our mother in heaven. As the only girl in a family with five brothers, I saw the gender discrepancies in our youth programs. But I trusted my leaders when they told me that our church honored women and viewed Eve differently than other traditions. We revered Eve for making the brave and wise choice to partake of the fruit and launch Heavenly Father's plan of salvation into action. The atonement of Jesus Christ was never the backup plan. It was the plan. And it required Eve. So I was utterly unprepared to have my trust shattered when I went through the temple for the first time in 2008. I was 20 and getting married a few days later. In the endowment, Eve did not seem to be honored. In the film, she was depicted as airy and naive, and after partaking of the fruit, she was punished and put under Adam's stewardship 
to the extent that she made covenants with her husband and not with God. Then she was silent. In church, Eve was praised in talks and lessons, but when it came to ordinances and structures of power, Eve was still subject to all the consequences of patriarchy. Men were to lead in the home and in the church. To add insult to injury, when the endowment depicted the creation of the world and humankind, Heavenly Mother was nowhere to be found. Creation was an all-male endeavor. I sobbed in the celestial room as I realized that this was a motherless house. My family didn't know what to say to me after the ceremony as they saw that mine were not tears of joy. It was about a year later in my first semester of the English master's program at BYU that I read my first Mormon feminist book, Refuge, An Unnatural History of Family and Place by Terry Tempest Williams. She wove together the narrative of her mother dying of ovarian cancer and the rising floodwaters of the Great Salt Lake. She wrote of watching the men in her family lay their hands on her mother's head to bless her. Later that night, she asked her mother if she could feel the tumor, and with her hands on her mother's belly, she prayed. I knew some of the history of women in the church giving blessings by the laying on of hands, but I hadn't before considered claiming that power for myself. Williams described acting as a midwife to her mother's death, and I came to see the end of life in a new and sacred way. In 2010, I got to hear Williams speak at a lecture series at BYU. Williams responded to a question from the audience about the challenge of being accepted as a Mormon writer among other Mormons due to her unorthodox beliefs and practices. She spoke of a book review of Refuge published in Dialogue that argued that by choosing to not give birth herself, Williams refused her connection to Mormon women. The writer criticized Williams for calling herself a midwife to her mother's death but then argued it could be painfully appropriate, however, since one who refuses to give life might be the best midwife to a dead flock. As Williams described her pain at this criticism, she wondered if by having since adopted a child, she was now a sufficiently Mormon woman for this critic. And I wondered, having lost my first pregnancy to miscarriage a few months earlier, was it the case that even among Mormon feminists in a tradition that saw Eve differently, that women's power and belonging was exclusively through the multiplication of her sorrow and her conception?
I gave a copy of Refuge to my mother for Mother's Day in 2010. The next month, my mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, later reclassified as primary peritoneal cancer. The next two years were filled with surgeries, chemotherapy, scans, and sickness. Her belly swelled with fluid as mine grew with what became my firstborn son. We spoke on the phone frequently, comparing detailed stories of rushing to the toilet or trash can to vomit, commiserating in each other's disparate pains. My mother died of complications related to her cancer in May of 2012. We buried her the day before Mother's Day. The floodwaters of my grief rose, intertwining my mother's death with my Mormon feminist awakening and the search for voices who, whether biological mothers themselves or not, spoke the questions of my heart. In the months that followed my experience on the shower floor calling out for the mother, I would read David Paulson and Martin Polito's A Mother There, a survey of historical teachings about Heavenly Mother. Their essay reassured me that the sacred silence surrounding Heavenly Mother was not official doctrine and did not need to be repealed for people to start speaking up. Rachel Hunt Steenblick, who had worked as a full-time research assistant for Paulson and Polito, did just that. In 2017, when I was pregnant with my fourth and final baby, I read her book, Mother's Milk, Poems in Search of Heavenly Mother, and then bought as many copies as I could to give to friends and neighbors. Despite all this, I knew it still wasn't acceptable to talk about Heavenly Mother openly at church. I had been taught explicitly and implicitly that women were to be mothers not seek the mother. It didn't seem to matter how many women or non-binary or queer individuals were pushed out by the narrowness of this path. In time, I learned that when Hinckley spoke of women being happy and not agitating for change, he wasn't reflecting reality. He was trying to create it with his words. He spent years as the primary organizer of the church's anti-ERA campaign. He would have been well acquainted with Mormons for ERA and the members who agitated for equal rights under the United States Constitution. And he knew of women seeking greater authority within the church too. In 1993, Ezra Taft Benson was mostly incapacitated due to health issues. As his first counselor, Hinckley was the de facto leader of the church during the September 6th excommunications of feminists and intellectuals, including several writers in Maxine Hanks' collection, Women and Authority. He knew that there were women in the church asking for equality and for their authority to be recognized, but he denied the voices of actual women in the church to push the conversation where he wanted it to go.
Perhaps it is an intentional mechanism of Mormon patriarchy that women are at times honored as symbols, while actual women are cut out of the structures of power. When women speak up about systemic inequality in the church, we have ready symbols to point to that allow us to dismiss their concerns. Look, we have a Heavenly Mother. Just don't talk to her or about her. Look, we honor Eve, the mother of all living. Just don't notice how we use the Garden of Eden mythology to justify patriarchy on earth and in heaven. The problem is not that the church has symbols of womanhood. Humans are meaning-making people who use story and symbol to express, teach, and share. The problem centers on how the symbols of womanhood are used to extend or deny power and privilege to women and individuals at the margins. Symbols are adaptable, but in order to stop using symbolic womanhood as a weapon to silence women, we have to be willing to listen to and act upon what we hear from those hurt by the way we represent or fail to represent women and gender minorities in the church and in the temple. When the church rolled out the significant changes to the temple ceremonies in January 2019 that expanded Eve's role in the endowment and cut out some overt sexism in the ceremonies, the changes were accompanied by a message from the First Presidency instructing members not to discuss or even acknowledge the changes. While I found the changes to be an important starting point towards egalitarianism, the demand for silence was a fresh injury. It was the updated version of the women of the church aren't complaining about it, because aside from the inherent sexism and the idea that women asking for a voice equates to complaining, Placing members under a demand for silence is a fine way to signal not being willing to hear them at all. And even with the changes, the temple remained a motherless house. Hi, this is Eric of Face and Hat, a member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. And I was trying to think of a reason why you might want to listen to Face and Hat and and frankly, um, call it false humility, call it a stupor of thought, but I was having a rough time. So I decided to ask a friend of the show, David O. McKay, if he would be so kind. Have you ever sat down and talked with men in a serious sort of way? of their views of life and pondered then on all that they had to say? If not, you should in some quiet hour. It's a glorious thing to do. Wow. Thanks, man. That's, that's really cool. Anyway, you should definitely listen to Face and Hat. I mean, David O. McKay thinks it's good. Dialogue Podcast Network. Hinkley era redirection from our theological shortcomings regarding Heavenly Mother aren't working anymore. Especially among younger generations, the role of women in the church is among the top reasons for leaving the church. We can't sacred silence 
our way out of how our ceremonies fail to address the eternal potential of women and gender minorities in a satisfying way. And we can't insist our women are happy by excommunicating or informally pushing out the women who are not, in fact, happy with current gender dynamics. My sons and daughters see and point out sexism in the church as primary children in ways that I didn't learn to do until my 20s. Heavenly Mother needs a theology of her own. This theology will need to grow out of the voices of those who have sought her, which will require centering the voices of the marginalized, not pretending that they aren't speaking. Through her poem turned him, O my father, Eliza R. Snow turned the hearts of the children to their mother. Perhaps by speaking openly and publicly about Heavenly Mother now, we can turn not only hearts, but ears to her as well. Maybe someday it won't seem so astonishing for a Mormon woman to call out to the mother and believe she was heard and answered. Low Rich is an independent scholar living in Saratoga Springs, Utah, with her husband, four children, and two dogs. She has a bachelor's in history and a master's in English, both from Brigham Young University. She blogs monthly at Exponent 2 and presented at the 2021 Mormon History Association Conference. Her research interests include 19th and 20th century Mormon women's history, theological developments regarding Heavenly Mother, and gender-based power dynamics in the church. This audio story was read by Taylor Hayes, with original music and editing by Daniel Foster Smith. Dialogue Out Loud is produced by the Dialogue Foundation, with support from Mary Thieves and Salton Studios. Our content manager is Emily Jensen, and our social media manager is Adam McLean. To find more great audio content like this, go to dialoguejournal.com podcasts. And while you're there, consider donating. Thank you. I'm going to take a risk in this ad by saying the word holiness right here in the very first sentence. That's risky because the word can trigger all kinds of positive or negative feelings. I mean, sometimes I'm afraid to call something holy because it makes things feel sort of unrelatable or or like disconnected from everyday life. And really, I mean, that's too bad because the word's actually related to wholeness and helpfulness, which suggests that maybe we can learn to find holiness in places we never really thought to look before. I'm talking about holiness like a fire. It can warm, but it can also burn. You might get smoke in your eyes, but the flickering flames are also really beautiful. If this kind of holiness sounds appealing, you should check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's a podcast featuring writers, artists, and activists who can help expand your concept of holiness to include the gritty, earthy stuff of everyday life. Come fan the flames of your curiosity at Fireside with Blair Hodges, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Available at firesidepod.org and wherever you get your podcasts.
Dialogue Podcast Network.